Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You're listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a conversation with a guest sharing their story and insights about what can help when you're adapting to loss. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Tara McGuire, author of Holden After and Before. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast today, Tara. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here with you. At Grief Stories, we believe that the stories that people experience that they carry with them of grief and loss and adjustment have the power to heal, the power to heal the storyteller in some capacity and also the the power to help the audience heal. And so um, what I would like to do is invite you to share your story of loss um, to get us beginning our conversation today. Thank you. I always have to take a deep breath before I do this because it's still hard every time, even after uh, it's been seven and a half years now since Holden died in the summer of 2015. Um, My husband, daughter, and I had been away traveling for a long time. We took an extended travel sort of work hiatus of 10 months and um, Holden was 21 years old. And um, because we'd been traveling, we'd only seen him once since we got back when the police came to our door and informed us that Holden had died of a suspected overdose. And um, that was in 2015. It was prior to the opioid crisis even being named a health crisis in Canada. Um, But there were a lot of people who died on the opening wave of the overdose crisis and um, you know, since then, a lot has happened in the realm of of the overdose crisis. Um, but in terms of our loss and my loss of Holden, he was 21. It was nearly his 22nd birthday. We held his memorial service on what would have been his 22nd birthday. And mm. to me, he pretty much stays that age. Mm-hmm. He's frozen in that time and that space, yeah. right? His yeah. sister is almost catching up to him. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, it's always a tragedy to lose a child any way we lose them. And, uh, absolutely. And, and so many people who've lost children have connected with me in various ways. And there are a lot of similarities. Every, every loss is unique and just as every life is unique, but we do share a lot of similarities in that out of sequence grief, which is, more shocking and more nonsensical, I think, than others. Yeah, it truly is because the way that it's supposed to work is that, um, you know, we grow old caring for our children. Eventually they care for us. And in time, um, we pass away and they are left to carry the legacy of our family and so forth. And that's kind of the order we think it's supposed to go in. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't always work that way. So the death of a child is always a tragedy. It's always sudden and unexpected. 
And then you take the circumstances of that loss and, and it, it uh, compounds the experience, right? So, yeah, I just don't think our psyches are prepared for that. And I don't know that it can ever be something that we talk about the stages of grief and one of them is acceptance. And I think in this case, it's, that's a very difficult piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when we think about stages of grief, really what we're thinking about is something that's not really linear and um, it's more fluid than that. And acceptance is a word. I, yeah, that's a struggle, right? One of the things that I talk about is um, sometimes rather than thinking about it as acceptance, it's more of an integration um, where this is this fact becomes a part of your story now. And so how do you integrate this fact into the story of your life? That's a really good word. I'm going to write that down because that's a much integration. How do you spell it? Um, It's much, that makes a lot more sense to me than acceptance. Some things are completely unacceptable, but I think what I have been doing now that you mentioned that is integrating Holden's death into the fabric of my life and my family Mm-hmm. In a way, in a way that can coexist. I sometimes yeah. talk about parallel tracks. Like you can have this grief track that you're living, and you can also have your life track, which can have some joy in it, some peace in it, some progress in it. And the grief is still there beside you. Yes. Integration. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a good word for the process. And it it's, you know, it it does describe better this process of weaving together the joy and the pain of all of it. Um, I have a friend who talks about this kind of as the blessings of both the, the blessings of the pain, which remind us of the love and the person and their absence, but the blessings of the joy that we can still feel and how we, we weave those together so that the person is always important and present, but we also have the space for comfort and pleasure and joy. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. That that would be an ideal way to handle things. (laughs) Right. And, and it's sort of, it's more of a, it's not really something that we necessarily achieve and hold on to. It's not a one and done process, like experience. It's more of a process, right? For sure. And it's a moving bar too. Some days that does feel right. And some days your needle, at least my needle flips very far back onto the the sadness and grief side. And then some, uh, some days are very, very peaceful or even joyful. So yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's organic. Yeah, I I agree. I think anytime we try to put grief in one box or one space or one definition, um, we'll, we'll struggle because I don't think it ever is one thing or one way, uh, not between, not from person to person, but also not within the same person. Sure. Absolutely. Or at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me that some of the challenges you faced were this sudden unexpected death of your child after sort of this, what would be a normal life stage kind of separation experience, right? Like, you know, he was, he was having a normal life of a 21 year old out in the world. And as parents of a 21 year old, you were you know, having a little bit of separation experience, which is age and stage appropriate. 
And then to suddenly have that interrupted and cut off in this way. Um, imagine that some of the challenges came from those pieces of this experience, you know, the sudden unexpected. Yeah. yeah. And that's that wondering, that constant wondering if things might have been different had we been closer physically and perhaps more vigilant rather than, you know, I was working really hard to let Holden express himself and live his life in the way that he wanted to. I knew that uh, some of his lifestyle choices weren't healthy, but I made a lot of unhealthy lifestyle choices too. Like there's a certain amount of risk that I think is inherent in the adolescent development process and feeling the consequences of those risks are what help us to become adults. So yeah, it sucks. It sucks that I was, that we were away and there will always be a fiber of guilt in the way that I contextualize the loss. And then part of me thinks maybe it wouldn't have made any difference if we were here. And and that's the piece that I always come back to is we can't know. And I always really think about the idea that we all do the best we can every day in our given circumstances with what we know at the time and that our best fluctuates. Sometimes our best is great. Sometimes our best is not so great. And so we always are looking at what we've done or experienced from the lens of, of today, what we know today, but we couldn't have known that before. So you were, you were parenting him and living your life as if everything would be fine and he would live to a ripe old age because that's the expectation. Mm -hmm. And this, I think you're absolutely right that there is an element of risk in adolescence and young adulthood as people learn about themselves and about the world around them independently, that without that learning, they can't become fully functioning adults, but the stakes are life and death. They sure are now. I don't know how old you are, but I'm 58. And when I grew up, when I was in my early 20s, we could go out and smoke pot. We could do, I didn't do a lot of drugs, but some. And the worst thing that could happen was that we would have a hangover or we'd get pregnant. You know, like those were kind of the the worst things. Right. Maybe arrested. Maybe arrested. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I was in that boat, but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess so. But now, um, now the stakes are so much higher. And so, yeah, I, I think that the ground rules have changed. Mm-hmm. And still we have to have ways to let our young adults become fully functioning adults through learning and living. Oh yeah. I mean, Holden was a stubborn person. He probably got some of that from me. I would never do what someone told me because it was what they told me. I would do what I thought was right. And if, if there was a negative outcome, then that was my choice. And, and he, I loved that about him. You know, he was very, he was very artistic person, a very, very intelligent person and humorous. And he saw the world in a way that wasn't conservative. He was very unconventional. And, you know, often people's strengths are also their weaknesses. And for Holden, I think that was very true. Mm -hmm. 
And it's learning to balance all of those pieces of ourselves, the the things that uh, make us uniquely who we are as we learn and grow, that is part of this experience of living and, um, and then brings risks with it. So it's, yeah, it seems to me you've had seven and a half years to live with this loss and carry this grief. And, you know, what I know about grief is that it really never leaves us, but it does sometimes shift in how we carry it. And I wonder if you have some thoughts about how your grief has has shifted or if there's been, you know, sort of a any kind of process of healing. And I say healing, not expecting that it's curative, but that the sharp edges sometimes can be softened a little as we carry it. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Back to the word integration that you used. I would say the first three years were really devastating. Uh, Five years after Holden died, I was much more functional. I, I mean, my career was over too at the same time. So that was another big loss um, and a real transition in terms of my own sense of myself even aside from Holden's death. So I turned to education. I wanted to become, I was a broadcaster and I wanted to be uh, a writer and an artist. And so I turned to education formally through a a couple of different pretty big um, programs, one being the writer studio at our Simon Fraser University. And then I was fortunate enough to be accepted into the master's of creative writing program at UBC here in Vancouver. And through not just the writing of the my thesis, which has ended up to be my book, but through the education of learning how to express myself in a more articulate way, for me, that was a really big way to understand what had happened and what it meant to me. Because I think in order, and I learned this as a broadcaster, when you interview someone, It's one thing to ask a question. It's quite another to answer it. So I asked myself a lot of questions. Why did this happen? What does it mean to me? Um, What does it mean as a parent, you know, uh, for my daughter, Lila, as Holden's sibling, our extended family, our friend group, what are these impacts? What did the place that we live have to do with it? What does the, the, the way we communicate now, social media, that kind of stuff, uh, the divorce that Holden's dad and I had, all of these elements I had to ask myself about in order to write down what I thought about them. And that was some very deep sort of personal exploration. It was not easy, but I think that in some ways, I feel like no stone is unturned. You know, mm-hmm. there's nothing, there's nothing unresolved. It's all out there. It's all pretty raw. And, and actually it's very public now over the the fall and, you know, the book tour that I have done and I'm kind of still doing talking with you and other people like you is um, in some ways bringing the grief very, very up close and present. I, I know now that I have to leave time to recover from these conversations, but I'm also really interested in having them because I think they're helpful and they help me understand more about the grief as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Which is very much what we believe in are about here at Grief Stories as well, 
that the process of telling your story, sharing your story, working with your story is a healing process. And that is true for you as the storyteller and those who you share your story with, um, who can take aspects from it. Yeah, I, I've been really grateful about um, to receive feedback on the book from people who've lost children, who've lost friends, and also people who haven't in the way that it's affected them in that it's helped them to articulate some feelings they were having, but they didn't quite know how to put into words or that they have felt seen in some of the confused, you know, I talk about grief happening before loss too, like this sort of, um, I don't know, I guess it's fear or, you know, that a grief might, that a loss might happen. There's yeah. quite a lot of that in the book. There's this feeling of foreboding. It begins with Holden's death and works its way back to it again. So the reader knows that Holden has died. Uh -huh. They just don't know how. And so I think when you're in a relationship with someone who you're worried about, there's that sense of grief all the time. Yes. A sort of a premonition. So yeah. That kind of thing, readers have said they really felt um, they appreciated it because it made them feel less wacko, you know, like. Yeah, we sometimes call that anticipatory grief right. and we are more likely to name that if someone's given a terminal diagnosis, but we can have anticipatory grief in other circumstances where it's just less recognized. Right. But it's that it's living with that possibility of death. If someone you love is in active drug use, yep. I would say there can be anticipatory grief every day. Yes. And we don't necessarily name it as that, but we probably should. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not that I'm a big on shoulds, but but, you know, that's not an individual. That's a collective should. Well, if it's helpful, you know, yeah. it helps you yeah. understand how, how, what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think it could be helpful. Yeah. Um, I want to go back for a minute and just talk about your timeline. And then I'd like to talk some more about the writing, um, uh, um, if that's okay with you. Um, I think, you know, you mentioned that the first three years were just really in this space of devastation. And, and it wasn't until around the fifth year that you started to find yourself being able to be more functional. And I want to just really talk about the fact that that's actually um, a normal timeline, normal, you know, in air quotes, um, for <laughs> sudden unexpected traumatic death, because you are dealing with trauma and you're dealing with grief and the timeline and the experience is different than an, an in order in sequence sort of anticipated death that, that matches up with our thoughts about uh, life expectancy. And so I think it's so important for people to hear that from someone who's, who's come through some of that to the space of finding some more functionality, reworking your life, finding some meaning and purpose uh, moving into that, having survived the devastation and the raw, almost unbearable grief of that early experience, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, people told me things. Some people wanted, wanted me to rush. Others didn't, which I was very grateful for. I think one of the most helpful things, um, 
was people telling me to take my time and people who had lost children saying, you know, two or three years in saying, oh, it's very fresh. And I remember thinking, fresh? It's been three years. And they were like, yes, this is a fresh loss. And that somehow allowed me to relax because whether you want to or not, I think you do kind of compare yourself to others or wonder what the hell is happening to your life. (laughs) Um, Well, and there's no, there's no model for how you write yourself again. When something like this has happened, a sudden unexpected traumatic death leaves you reeling completely. Everything in your life is upended and there's no clear model that, that people can say, Oh, if you do this, it will help. And there are things that help a little bit here and there for a few minutes, Mm -hmm. you know, but in that beginning time, which fresh, you know, really thinking about those first three years as fresh is so important. And I'm so glad that you had people in your life who would, um, who would invite you to look at it that way and give you the space to take that time. Me too. And that is probably the number one piece of advice that I offer to others who, Uh, come to me who have a close person in their life that have lost someone they don't know what to do. I I really don't want to give any advice, but I think that that was the most helpful piece I received. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I think advice giving is overrated uh, because I know, I mean, I don't like to be told what to do. So I probably you know, I'm not, I'm not that uncommon in in my experience. Um, But I think that I, I sometimes talk about it as, you know, having a guidepost or shining a light on the path in such a way that that shows that this is the path and that, yeah. you know, and 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 so I think sometimes when we frame that as advice, um, uh, it is kind of advice, but it's also more validation of what is. Yeah. And, I, you know, I went to a number of different therapists and, and I remember sitting in one's office saying, you know, you're, you're leaning into the feelings, your, your self-care, you know, the yoga, the nutrition, the hydration, the rest, all this stuff. And she said, well, I guess there's really nothing further I can offer you. And I was like, what? I'm on my own here. You're supposed to be a professional. (laughs) Um, And being kind of disillusioned and thinking, oh, I guess there really is no official way to do this. And, um, you know, sometimes time moves very, very slowly. And then I, I'm aware that now I'm aware that there were sections, there are sections of that three, even five years that I really have no memory of. There's something weird that happened with my psyche or sense of time where actually to my great relief, it's kind of blank. Yeah. That's, that's really a trauma response. When we experience a traumatic event, then uh, what happens is it it really kind of shuts down some of our higher brain functioning, at least temporarily. And higher brain functioning is responsible for things like memory and organization and um, executive functioning kind of skills, right? And so in that in that time when grief is raw, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to remember. It's hard to organize. Um you know, we forget things, we don't show up for things, we lose things. And, um, and that's just because the experience has put your brain into survival mode. 
Yeah. And I think that comes back in little chunks, even now mm-hmm. where like this morning I was putting something away in a drawer and I saw a picture of little three-year-old Holden that I had taken. It was just shoved in there. And I was right back there, you know, memory and time slips all yes. the time. And so everything kind of just went out the window. I just followed that. And then I was looking at other photographs and putting them in frames and thinking, oh, maybe I haven't done a very good job of this. Like it just, it just derails sometimes, even now on days when I'm feeling more stable. Yeah. And I think there's a real value in being gentle with yourself around that and knowing that that's just your, your being's way of moving through this pain that that never really is gone you know it's if you can if we talk about it like an ocean and you were cast into the ocean on the day that you got the news that he died and initially you were in the storm of the ocean for a good three to five years it was a raging storm and now the sea's a little bit more calm but there's still occasional rogue waves or occasional storms will pass through that mm-hmm. that have you sort of grasping for that piece of the ship to hold on to again right mm-hmm. and yeah and, and that's true that'll be true probably as long as you're drawing breath yeah and and then also looking at that photograph, I had some very comforting thoughts about it too, about, oh yeah, we did have good times. You know, it wasn't, it's not all tragic. Yeah. No, it's also this invitation to hold the sweetness of it, of yeah. his life, of him, right? And yeah. and that piece is where I think where my friend talks about the blessings of both. Yeah. Right. Also being about between seven and nine years out from her loss, that ability to hold that you know so I I just wanted to really highlight that very real timeline that's different than what a lot of people think about when they think about grief and then I, I I'd like to talk a bit more about the writing experience because I love your approach taking it from that broadcaster's experience and skills that you have and really examining it from so many different angles and lenses and considerations like you said no stone unturned Um, So I do um, a lot of work with therapeutic writing and narrative therapy type strategies with people from time to time. I find that that's really um, a helpful way to help navigate this story of your life. And that includes this tragic loss. And so the, I wonder if there was an aspect of the writing that you found most helpful and how you were navigating this experience? Well, I think with, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, there are so many questions that come with the death of someone very close to you. After what happened, how did it happen? Why? Then you get into why did it happen? And you can break that down even further. And so in my writing practice, I was, you know, journaling and writing very bad, sad poems. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then I started to um, try and think about Holden's experience. And that is where uh, the fictional elements of my book come in. So I could use something that I knew about him. For example, Holden was a very fine graffiti artist. And so I would put him in a scene 
where he would be painting graffiti. And I would just spend a lot of time thinking about what did he feel like? Where did he find joy? How was he expressing himself through this medium? Why was he so attracted to it? And really spend a lot of time just thinking about him and in some ways, I guess, appropriating his voice, but just embodying him in some way mm-hmm. that became a great comfort to me. It was almost a way to continue our relationship and keep him alive in my dialogue with him. And that probably sounds very cuckoo, but I'm okay with it because I think it's a natural response when someone is missing to follow them and to go into that hole or that empty space. And I call it, you know, like writing across blank spaces, which is what I did. And so Um, I think of the book in a way as a continued conversation. Um, One of the original titles was Between Him and Me. And it was it was that I could ask questions in text in the memoir and he could answer them in some ways in fiction. And uh, I spent a lot of time revising the book. I've revised it three or four times completely. And so I you know, I had to take those small steps to get to the point where now I feel like it is talking to itself um, structurally inside the book. And I, I mean, I think it's kind of a, quite a sophisticated process and I couldn't have got to that on the first draft. No way. Yeah. And so I think that to me, that process highlights to me the value of writing and telling and retelling a story um, to allow yourself to see it from different angles, to shape it differently as you move through it and move through it again and again. And that process is, is healing in as far as we can heal these wounds. When you said that it sounds cuckoo, I just want to go back to that for a minute because <laughs> we, we often feel like we're crazy, like there's something not right with us when we're going through these processes of grieving that hit us in different ways. And I, I want to let you know a little bit about the theory about grief, if that is okay with you. I'd love to um, hear. Yeah. So an author named Warden, um, I can't remember his first name right now, but W-O-R-D-E-N, he wrote about four tasks of mourning. And um, the first task is to accept the reality of the loss. Right? A lot of times the shock of it is such that our our be, our whole being rejects it and we spend some time in denial and um, shock. Well, now, like just finding out about Prince Harry for what, 15 years, he thought his mom was coming back, that she was hidden somewhere. Yeah. I don't find that wacko at all. No, it's actually just a, a common defense mechanism of our brain and our being to protect us that way. It's like, we can't, we can't absorb it all at once. We have to have this mechanism of denial. Um, uh, So accepting the reality is really the first task of mourning, because then when we begin to accept the reality, we can feel the pain of the loss, right? We can't feel the pain of something we don't accept. And so there's that process. And I think accepting the reality is different than that term acceptance we were talking about earlier. You know, um, mm-hmm. accepting the fact of it is what I'm talking about here in these stages or tasks of mourning, then feeling the pain of the loss. And then 
you know, the third task that he identifies is this sense of having a continuing bond with the person who's died. And so your conversation with Holden in this framework of the story that you were telling is part of a continuing bond with him. So are the photographs that you have in the house. So are the things you do because he loved them. So are the ways maybe that you think of graffiti when you pass the art that's on in your community or anywhere else, right? All of these things are your way of being bonded to him. And I often speak with bereaved parents about this idea of the fact that you are still the child's parent, even though the child has died, you're still Holden's mom. And how you parent him looks different now than how it looked when he was living in a body physically. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I did feel like writing this book was continuing to parent him and, uh, maybe not an afterlife, but kind of a legacy or a documentation of some of the things in his life that mattered to me and hopefully to others. Mm -hmm. You're holding his light and you're holding his love and light in place. You're holding that space for him in this world, in the physical world. Um, And that's part of the continuing bond that you have with him. And it's parenting him in this way now that he's not physically here. And then the fourth task is to find meaning and purpose in the life that you have now. And so those are the four tasks that Warden identified um, for people who are grieving a loss of someone that they love. That's an important person in their life. Yeah. And hopefully that's that fourth piece is maybe some of what's happening with this book. Um, You know, I always talked about and aspired to be a writer and I never really had a reason because I had a very successful broadcasting career. Mm-hmm. And so now, um, you know, I wrote into the vacuum that was created by Holden's death. And now I've been given a lot of opportunities to write in different ways, different um, essays and things and uh, coming up, you know, speaking to groups, speaking to groups of writers, writing students. Um, I'm speaking to a group of provincial court judges coming up um, in BC here, 200 bench judges, just about our personal story. And I don't know what, uh, what ramifications that might have or not, but possibly it might bring some meaning. You know, I thought a lot about not writing this book because it's painful. Some people aren't happy with it. Um, There was some resistance to it. And it's a really hard thing to write any kind of a book, let alone one this personal. But Mm -hmm. I think that um, I didn't want his death to be for nothing. And I, it it could have just quietly gone and people would have remembered him privately. And of course we would have continued to hold him in our hearts. But I think in this way, there can be some kind of a meaning behind what happened in the context of the larger overdose crisis and how perhaps some changes can be made to prevent. There are over 30,000 families in Canada that we know of mm-hmm. that are feeling this terrible. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and so if some of those deaths moving forward can be prevented, then I would say that would be a pretty good purpose. Mm-hmm. I agree. And so, you know, I, I really want to honor your experience. I want to thank you for sharing it both through your book, but also through your speaking 
and through joining us today as a guest on the podcast. Um, because I think that, you know, for me, Holden's life was important. And mm-hmm. and and that was true whether I knew his story or not. But your sharing of his story and your story elevates that so that lots of people can know how important Holden is in the work Thank that you, you do. That that makes me really happy to hear. Thanks, yeah. Maureen. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining me to talk today about your experience of loss, sharing Holden with us, and your experience of writing and sharing his story and yours. I really appreciate it. It's been nice to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we realize that these stories may be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.